Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm real excited to have writer director Logan Kibbins with me. Hello. Hello. Um, So please let me give you an introduction to Logan's work. Logan is an award-winning writer-director whose films integrate visual artistry with narrative, character-driven storytelling. For many years, Logan worked as an editor on commercials and videos before attending the CalArts MFA program in film. The result of that education was dozens of short films, including Rock Jetty and Recessive. From there, she earned a spot as a project-involved fellow and then became an HBO DGA directing fellow, working on shows such as True Blood, The Newsroom, and Entourage. Her first feature, Operator, went through the Sundance Labs, garnering multiple awards from Film Independent and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, because it's got some tech Science-y mm-hmm. stuff in there. Operator tells the story of a work and tech-obsessed man with a quote-unquote perfect and accommodating wife. When the man needs the ultimate customer service personality for his company's automated response system, he enlists his wife. But in the process of recording, the wife realizes she spent her whole life in service to others. So it's relationship, but tech, a little sci-fi. Not, not at all personal. No. <laughs> the film premiered in 2016 at South by Southwest, and is currently in distribution with a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Congrats. In the television world, Logan was a consulting producer on Jill Soloway's I Love Dick, RIP, and recently directed an episode of Snowfall for FX. She is a director and producer on KCET's docuseries Lost LA, for which she won an Emmy for Outstanding Director. In addition to all this, she is also a projections designer for theater and dance, with designs at the Goodman, Steppenwolf, and the Washington Opera, to name a few. That's long. <laughs> we want everyone to know. Like, Thank what you. did she do? Yeah, it took a long time. Okay, so Logan. Yes. Uh, one of the your fave genre films is Albert Brooks's "Defending Your Life," and that's what mm-hmm. you chose to talk about today. Yeah, probably, uh, possibly my favorite film. Film, not just genre film. Really so, uh, glad that it fit in okay. with your podcast. Can you give me like a little, um, a little? you know, explanation of why it's one of your faves. Sure. Um, I came to it as an early teenager. I was probably like 14 or so. My mom taught philosophy and she used films like Defending Your Life and Groundhog Day and Gattaca and The Matrix to mm. teach philosophy through film to her students. Yeah. So somewhere in there, I was introduced to the film. Um, I, I have to have seen it over 50 times at this point. Oh, wow. Um, so it's stayed with me. For many many years, did you get your um, mom's lessons lesson plans about? I didn't. This? I should ask for that. Like um, what her talking points were? Yeah, Gosh, yeah. she could have written the script for today's show. <laughs> I, I could only call her. her. We could Facetime. Oh, yeah, just like. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and watching it again, I was like, okay, ho- I hope this holds up. And I'm curious to hear what you think. But I, I yeah, because actually... I watched it for the first time. Yeah. But I, yeah, I still responded strongly. Like two thirds of the way through, I was like, this is solid. And then I kept thinking, is there anything that I don't need in this movie? And then there was a part where I was like, maybe we don't need that part. But still, the, th- <laughs> <laughs> the themes, the direction, the acting, the physical comedy, uh, it all just still works for me as a, a metaphor for yeah. life. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, for those of you who haven't seen Defending Your Life, because we will probably talk about the scene that maybe Logan would cut, uh, <laughs> today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, as always, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Defending Your Life, 
Here's your chance. Now let's introduce Defending Your Life with a quick synopsis. Written and directed by Albert Brooks, Defending Your Life stars Brooks as Daniel Miller, a nervous ad exec who's treating himself with a new Beamer. While he's driving, however, he crashes head-on into a bus and wakes up numb and dumb in a clean, bright place, which we come to understand as a kind of purgatory. Daniel's carted off on a tram to a modest hotel where he's told he can eat anything he wants and never gain any weight, which is a running theme of this movie, (laughs) something I fully understand. Mm -hmm. He's in a place called Judgment City, which has a bunch of fun amenities for people awaiting their judgment. But Daniel's also got an appointment with his quote-unquote lawyer, played by Rip Torn. The lawyer, Bob, explains that now is when they catalog the remnants of Daniel's life. You have any idea what's going on? No. Well, in a nutshell, you're here to defend your life, and I'm going to help you. What they're trying to decipher is if Daniel sufficiently conquered his fear and acted as a good person on Earth. If he did, he gets to move on. Because in this version of the afterlife, absolutely nobody wants to go back to Earth. Because Earth is the place where you have to learn more and more lessons. So... The lawyer and the prosecutor, played by Lee Grant, the wonderful Lee Grant, uh, then convene in a room and see parts of Daniel's past played out, where we find that Daniel is a a neurotic type who took a lot of things for granted in his life. Very neurotic, I would say. Uh, He never really went for what he wanted. Over the course of the following four days, I will attempt to show that Daniel Miller, while he's a quality human being, is still held back by the fears that have plagued him Lifetime after lifetime. Meanwhile, Daniel meets a gorgeous woman named Julia, played by Meryl Streep. How about your wife? I got married too young, that's all I can say. How old were you? 71. (laughs) Julia's had an altogether different life, essentially a perfect human full of grace and bravery. The two slowly start to fall in love, but their time in this place is only temporary, and it's looking more and more like Julia is going to move on, and Daniel will go back to Earth. Eventually, judgments are made, and each are sent packing on different trams to take them to their fate. But Daniel takes a chance and chases after Julia's tram, forcing his way onto her lifeline. I love you. Oh, my God. I tried to call you, but I didn't know your last name. I won't let you go. I won't let you go. And the powers that be agree that Daniel finally earned his pass to a better place. Okay, that's defending your life. I want to know what you thought. I'm so curious. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a fascinating film, and I think it has. Um, it's a precursor to what you're seeing being brought up today. Uh, the Good Life, or mm-hmm. sorry, The Good mm-hmm. Place yeah. is um, the television show. The Good Place is certainly um, an extension of defending your life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and if uh, you know the creator um, Michael Schur, if he hadn't seen Defending Your Life, I'm sure. You know, people would be like, have you seen Defending Your Life? So I was actually very surprised at how kind of prescient that was Mm -hmm. for what we're interested in. So Albert Brooks as a filmmaker is certainly someone who is preoccupied, I would say, with philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, not in just in Defending Your Life, but in many of his movies about like what is good, what is wrong and kind of interrogating the self Mm -hmm. Um, and in a very kind of pure and altruistic manner, I would say. He's, you know, it seems like goodness. Um, and this movie, you know, 
you make a movie like that, and I just don't know if that's the kind of movie that people are going to be like, yeah, millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so this is a, a filmmaker who's lived in a kind of middle place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but this is a film, like you said, that could survive for much longer just because you have people who want to talk about the philosophy of what it is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I come across people who this is a really important film to them. So it's you know it, it's hard to sort of ba- figure out how much a film means to somebody versus how many people have enjoyed a film. You know yes. what I mean? There's not really that the scale for that necessarily, other than time, I yeah. guess. So let's talk about the origin of the idea for this too, um, mm. uh, because. Brooks said, the idea had been bouncing around for a while. Stories like that sort of have to bounce. They don't come out of nowhere. I went through my own period of life with sort of everything turning upside down and wondering, why is it this way? I went from being unafraid at the beginning of my career in my late 20s to being like the roadrunner. I looked down and I didn't see anything. You don't wake up one day and say, Earth ain't the best place to be. That's a brewing type of feeling, end quote. Hmm. And so this was an extension of him kind of working out this idea of fear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a lot of his interviews, he was talking about, like, fear was driving him and, and he didn't know how to exercise that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I love that metaphor. And it's done so well in the film and it's so clear. But I I feel like at least it doesn't hit you over the head necessarily, even though it's stated over and over again. Um, but I actually watching it again, I was like, oh, this isn't about fear. There's a moment at the end where he doesn't move on, mm-hmm. where he gets the decision. And Rip Torn is reading his decision and, you know, trying to calm him down a little bit. And he says something like, you know, don't pay so much attention to what other people are saying to you. Pay attention to what's in here. Mm -hmm. And he touches his heart. And that, to me, is what the movie is about. And that, to me, is a further extension of this idea of fear. That it's not about what are you afraid of. Being afraid is okay. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, being controlled by fear is is certainly a part of the metaphor, but really like listening to your own wants and your own intuition and your own beliefs, which I guess goes back to what we're talking about by sort of making choices by committee. Yeah. You know, it's it's all against that idea. Um, And that's what he ends up doing uh, is listening to what he wants and not using the voice of people on Earth or people in Judgment City to tell him what he should be doing. I mean, he looks around in these in the like viewing chamber, whatever his like courtroom is. Yeah, the the looks on his face—it's it kind of incredible. He looks like like a six-year-old boy who's looking at his parents, telling him what to do and trying yeah. to interpret like who he's going to listen to and what you know. It's very childish in this way of letting other people make your decisions for you. So these are big ideas, and I'm wondering, how do you fit something like that into your screenplay? Like, how do you get that? How do you get that to to translate? How do you not push it too far, mm-hmm. where people just kind of turn off because they feel like maybe you're you're doing like you know what dreams may come or something? <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Maybe one of my guests will pick what dreams may yeah, come. Nice. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I haven't read the screenplay for it. I would be really curious to read the actual shooting script for the film because so much of what's in there is Albert Brooks as a performer, Meryl Streep as a performer. I mean, how do you write Meryl Streep as an actor? Like, reading those words on the page, you can't have heard or seen or felt what Meryl Streep was doing. She's so... And again, like, the description and the way that you would talk about the film, she is 
a sort of strangely perfect person. She is a, a little tropey, potentially. Mm-hmm. She is, you know, a manic pixie dream girl, potentially. Mm-hmm. But I don't find her that way in the film. And it's not it's not just the way that she plays it, although it has a lot to do with that. And, of course, you know, choosing and getting to cast Meryl Streep is, is a huge part of that. But there's a moment where... It's t- again towards the end of the film. He's had a series of terrible days in his what are we calling <laughs> his viewing chamber? I don't the I screening remember. room. Yeah, I think they call like it the screening, screening room. room. Yeah. yeah. So he's watched you know terrible events from his life, um, and then he's seen Meryl Streep have this like incredible what he calls mutual of Omaha commercial moment in her life where she saves her children from the fire. Yeah. Uh, and then his prosecutor comes in when he's having dinner. With Meryl Streep. Do you remember that scene? She's eating the pasta and like she won't stop eating the pasta and he's freaking out because he's like, she's watching me. I can't we can't do this. I have to leave. I can't be here again. He's just projecting onto other people and letting, you know, their judgment of him control what he's doing. And she has this brilliant moment. First of all, she's just experiencing joy, which Mm -hmm. she's great at. And she's loving every moment of it. And she's not worried about how other people are feeling about her. And his neurotic behavior is not affecting her experience of joy. And he he won't let go. And then she gets up and she pats him on the shoulder and she says, I'm going to go to the ladies' room. I pray to God when I get back, you've changed. (laughs) I just feel like it's such a simple, perfect way to be like, she's not going to change for you. She's not controlled by you. She's not she's not a woman in reflection of you being a man. She's a, a whole person who is enjoying being with you and you need to get the fuck over yourself. You so know, that brings to mind a quote that um, Meryl Streep had from an interview around that time. She said, <clears throat> quote, I know Albert feels he's written a whole woman, a completely full blown person. I didn't know how to break it to him. He's really not done that. He's written an idea of a woman, and I did my best to fill those silver slippers. But it was also fun. I thought, ah, hell with it. You're dead. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) It's amazing. So I think if you're like, that goes to what you're talking about, where there's a certain kind of fun Mm -hmm, to this, mm -hmm. like a, a certain kind of playfulness to her performance that isn't on the page, that is there just in who she is. And, and, you know, to Albert Brooks's credit, though, he cast her and asked her to be in this and wrote it for her because she was so fun and weird when they were hanging out together at Carrie Fisher's house. Mm -hmm. So they like they met at a party and he was just like, oh, my God, you're really fun. You're not like Meryl Streep. You're like Meryl. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, felt that she could potentially bring what he maybe couldn't write. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But somehow could see, right? Yeah. And and that's an interesting part of being his being a writer, actor, director. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think? Now I want to know. I mean, it's uh, the way she... that she talks about. It, I think it's fascinating. I have mm-hmm. more of appreciation for her performance, which is just like, ah, she's just so fucking good. And you're do you ex- feel like her character is a full person, or is she? No. Uh-huh. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but you know the story is about him mm-hmm. and the decisions that he needs to make. Mm-hmm. She seems fine, yeah. but you know it's it's uh, in this case. I guess I just don't mind it because it's more of a genre fair where she has to be. Uh, she's funny, mm-hmm. and as long as a character is funny, I think that fills in a lot of like mm-hmm. things that don't exist. Mm-hmm. But I, in your experience of working with actors, have you ever had like anything? 
like if you even if you're just directing something that someone else wrote or like maybe you're just like I don't know what this scene means I hope that this actor can bring it for me um yeah I mean I usually have a desire or an idea of what it means or needs but I always try to be open and leave space for what the actor's interpretation is yeah so I don't know that I've gone in not knowing um but I do love you know I do love rehearsing whenever you can I do love talking to actors and asking what their interpretation is and what they're bringing to the scene um and then that can inform and restructure what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. and because I mean, every it's such a creative pursuit, and you want to bring the best from everybody who's working on it in any capacity, yeah. in the crew, in the cast. Um, and you have an operator. You had two, you know, actors who were known for comic performances who were doing more emotional things. So mm-hmm. you're kind of doing the opposite of what Albert Brooks was doing. <laughs> you know, you bring like a dramatic actress into the comedy world because you know that she has the chops, and then mm-hmm. you know you're, you know, doing the exact opposite. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it seems like that would be. You know, I I guess you'd just be open to anything at that point. I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me You're what like, you Why mean. did I do it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is what is bringing a comic actor into a drama do? Uh, you mean May? Yeah. Um, I mean, I could just tell... What, I, I was just I saying know. Martin Starr and May uh, uh, Whitman, Whitman yeah. as uh, they starred in this. Yeah. Um, we cast May pretty close up to when we were shooting. I mean, you hear all these stories about how films come together and it's just true. Like, mm-hmm. the, all the crazy nightmare stories are true and they tend to happen. Um, and then it works out. So it's, you know, this weird daredevil ride. Um, and I didn't know of her or her work before seeing a tape that we were sent from her agent. Uh, and oh, I just shit. responded. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't even realize no, that and she Sharon, was like... No, and Sharon knew who she was. Sharon's my wife and co-writer on Operator and producer. Um, and she responded really strongly to her tape and then, you know, wanted to have me see it and see how I responded. And you could, like her performance, you could feel it in your body when mm-hmm. she, and you could, like, she just has such a depth and emotion. Um, and then I Skyped with her and I could tell she connected with the material, which is important to me. Again, like at any pay scale, there should be some motivation other than the financial and logistical motivation. Yeah, like, yeah. You're I- not going to get rich off of an indie movie. Yeah, but even if you're doing something with a high budget and you are getting rich off of it, you should ideally the, the everybody involved should still connect somehow creatively or emotionally. Or it should be serving something for them other than financial gain. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I could tell that she had a way into that. Um I just I wasn't worried about her in any way. I knew that she had those chops, and I, I guess I didn't have a lot of sort of backstory of what work she'd done before. Yeah, like Arrested Development, I would say would probably be her most well known kind mm-hmm. of returning, recurring character for mm-hmm. sure. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about editing. <laughs> okay. I know. It's, I swear <laughs> it's going to be fun, guys. Nobody's coming back. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Dead Pilot Society podcast brings you hilarious comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Aubrey Plaza, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, John Hodgman, Adam Scott, Molly Shannon, Busy Phillips, Tom Lennon, Anna Camp, Lori Metcalf, Felicia Day, Michael Ian Black, Adam Savage, Paul Shear, Ben Schwartz, Skylar Aston, Mae Whitman, Josh Molina, Ben Feldman, Nicole Byer, Jason Ritter, Sarah Chalk, Steve Agee, Jane Levy, Allison Tolman, Danielle Nicolette, Casey Wilson, Anna Ortiz, Lorraine Newman, June Diane Raphael, Kieran Chipka, Ed Week, Zach Knight, and Carrie Kenny Silver, John Ross Bowie, Jamie Denbo, Janet Varney, Alexander Forsyth, Alexander Forsyth, Alexander Forsyth, Alexander Forsyth, Alexander Forsyth
and many more. Listen at MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Logan Kibbins, and we are talking about defending your life. Um, so editing, I swear, this is this is interesting, because I found Marshall Harvey, um, an editor uh, who's worked on a ton of different projects, uh, he did a segment for Trailers from Hell, uh, where he was talking about Albert Brooks's editing, hmm. but specifically the editing in Defending Your Life. Um, and in fact, Brooks actually played an editor in one of his other films, mm-hmm. uh, Modern Romance. So he clearly has an understanding or a love or affection for an off-maligned or <laughs> forgotten <laughs> uh, technician artist. Um, but I think that we can talk about both the writing and editing of Brooks's films, or this one specifically, by discussing a key scene in the beginning of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um because I'd love to break some of that down. I think yeah. when I watch the trailers from hell, it's just like, oh, yeah, he like this film is doing some interesting things um, with the editing and uh, the best, most economical and evocative transition for me comes when Brooks is driving his new car and crashes into the bus. And then we cut to his entrance in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And I think that sequence of events is just so beautiful. First off, he's driving in his car. The top is down. You're seeing like the the cityscape of LA going by he's like having a great time listening to Streisand mm-hmm. which is great I think you could probably have stretched that out to 10 minutes because he's just so <laughs> charismatic loving Streisand um, and then the like a uh, a CD or something falls off of the seat and then he has to like reach to pick it up and then it cuts to like his car being in front of the bus and we see the bus coming and then he puts up his hands like, oh, mm-hmm. and then we cut like very hard to him being pushed through um, uh, these hospital doors into a very white space. Yeah, with the theme music, the recurring theme music. I mean, why does that work for you? I, I can say how it works for me. I mean, but- it, we can break that down, but it's interesting because I, I do feel like there's something almost rhythmically perfect about the film in general. Yeah, and tell it's me. performance-wise, it's, it's the, the delivery on the part of pretty much every actor. Mm-hmm. Whenever there's a comedic moment, whenever there's a dry sort of dad joke, it's always... There's this punctuation. There's this pause that I think is perfect, um, and that okay, has so to be supplemented. Okay, so right after that, and then they and then they wait to move on to the next thing. Is that? Yeah, and I don't have a I don't have an example necessarily in mind because it really is across the board. It's like oh, I've got one. Yeah. How about when um, uh, Daniel's talking to his lawyer for the first time, and and he's talking about like oh, you know, it's not like hell. Although I think LA is getting there. Actually, there is no hell. Although I hear Los Angeles is getting pretty close. <laughs> well, Daniel, let me tell you what's going on. And then they both share a laugh for a yeah. second of like how terrible that joke is. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, and then you yeah. move on. Yeah, yeah like there, a small pause. There's like a little refresher yeah. after every bad joke. Yeah. That's something I hadn't noticed before. And I think you can find those rhythms in the physicality of each performance as well. Yeah. Both like in Meryl Streep and in Albert Brooks and Rip Torn and all of these various characters. Yeah. Um, and there, yeah, there is a similarity of delivery in the lines as well. Um, but you're right, it's punctuated by the editing. And watching it again, now that I know so much more about story structure and care about acts and things like that, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that moment that you just talked about happens at five and a half minutes 
in so the film. quick, so it's quick, so economical and wonderful. It's all you need. That's all the setup you need. He's a sort of moderately fine dude <laughs> who works in advertising, um, mm-hmm. who is divorced, who has you know a, a acceptable, decent middle class, potentially upper middle class income. Like he's just he's he's not average. He's above average, which I think is an important distinction that he put him there. Maybe that somehow adds to. Uh, it not having appeal across certain age groups. I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's not, it's a huge metaphor, the film, but it's not very black and white what he's doing. You Mm -hmm. know, nobody's terrible and nobody's great. We can talk about, and I'd be curious to talk about, you know, Meryl Streep's performance and what that character does, but uh, nobody is one or the other. Can we can we get into how you edit your own projects then? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how can you relate what you're saying about this into the philosophy you have of editing? Um, I don't know. I do. I think in rhythms, I'm like always tapping, and I always have a rhythm in my mind. And you I, do. Mm-hmm. So do you write? Do you edit to music or? Uh, no, not really. I I used to when I started. I would I would edit to music, but now I don't. I just kind of edit to performance um or visually yeah but um and you have edited commercial stuff too which mm-hmm. is a very different probably yeah rhythm. commercials tv feature documentary yeah music videos and yeah. each has their own rhythm mm-hmm. yeah and i my i have played uh violin since i was three so i have i feel like that sort of musicality probably translates somehow mm-hmm. into editing um but i, I don't know there's also I don't know that this directly relates, but there's some kind of like a synesthesia to that as well. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where like there's a a certain color and sound pairing just feels correct because those <laughs> right. Yeah, you're like, no, this is right. Yeah, this yeah. Is and I feel right. I, I feel that way about I I guess the rhythms of performance or the rhythms of certain kinds of comedy, and it yes. really is genre based like that rhythm that we're talking about in the performances in this film would not make sense in something else and it is of a time but I think at this point you could still do it it would just be sort of referential to a kind of comedy no I think that makes sense especially I think a lot of comedies are trying to pull their um, their sense of rhythm from TV now Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there, there's a kind of crossover from TV to film, so it's a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like if I look at the, you know, like the rhythm of the Good Place, even though it's very similar in, you know, style or you know, theme, yeah. Yeah. it's so different because of that rhythm and that pacing. You know, not trying to yeah, fit too many there, jokes in. There still is like that balance, though, of sort of bad joke and i mean that as a genre not as yes. a quality <laughs> like yes. um uh, you know the sort of dad joke of ted danson mm-hmm. um there is definitely a physical comedy in everybody there's you know cheaty is neurotic like there's it's a little bit like you took the personalities of this movie and spread them out amongst a more diverse ensemble oh that's actually yeah that's true. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think that um I mean cuz Albert Brooks was saying that he wasn't sure if he could ever make a movie like this again. Hmm. Um and then, Why? I, I don't know. He had like this kind of convoluted reason for it. I was trying to follow along in this interview and I was just like, why would you not be able to make this movie again? Because at the same time he's saying that he understands why it's 
you know, resonated so much. But he was one of the things that he was talking about, though, of why that actually made sense had to do with international audience. Hmm. He said, quote, I don't know that any of the films that I made I could make today. I would have to find another way to do that. It's not just me saying it's just the movie business. I could convince financiers that America would like me, even if they didn't. But I never could convince somebody that Korea would love modern romance, for instance. I just couldn't do that. Back then, I only had one country to lie about. Now I have to say, no, believe me, China's going to go nuts over this. So he never had the confidence that there would be an international translation of his kind of work. Yeah, and I guess maybe that means that in some ways, as prescient as he was about various things in his films, he wasn't necessarily about sort of the uprising of indie film and indie television. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where you don't have to worry to that extreme about international appeal or box office appeal necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's permeating everything in a a way, but we are finding, especially in TV, I mean, what's an an Albert Brooks TV show would be fucking great. Yeah. Like, and I think, you know, maybe we have that in the good place, but like, it's clearly a a moment where we could have something like that. Um, But it's interesting. It all just kind of goes back to this feeling of what are you driven by, which I think is something that, I, I mean, everyone I know grapples with, and I certainly... You know, making my own film in whatever landscape we're in um, at a time when, like, nobody knew who I was, and that's probably still true, but, like, in terms of financiers, and I didn't have, you know, I hadn't had a feature to back that up, Mm -hmm. and you're really pushing this huge rock up a hill with some people who've agreed to help you for various lengths of time. Um, and it can be really hard to and you're just noted all over the place and you read the list of fellowships like there's a lot of people giving support and giving notes and and you have to continue to interpret that through your own yeah which lens is great and that's, intuition. that's fine that's wonderful if someone takes the time to give you oh, a note it's incredible but, yeah. yeah but also like to speak to what may be a further theme of this movie like continuing to find a way to be driven through your own intuition about what you should be making, what mm-hmm. your project should be, which I don't even know is necessarily about you as a filmmaker, but is like about the idea of what you're doing, like yeah. in service of, you know, and for me, those things come in. I get ideas sort of through theme and intellectually and emotionally and visually. So I'll see scenes and, you know, just kind of making sure that everything you're building on is in service of those things. Yeah. Um, can be really hard the more voices and box offices and territories and you know so it it sounds if if you get to the point where you're thinking about like and uh, albert brooks acting in his pieces do i personally have appeal to china i mean that's gonna fuck you up like Like, oh shit what if china hates me Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and personifying china i mean that's problematic as well i know Um, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some special effects stuff with this, because there's actually some interesting things that he did. So one quick break. Ooh, girl, I'm lost. It's a scary time out here for intersexual minorities. Don't worry. I know a place where we can learn, laugh, and play. Where? Minority Corner with the Wonder Twins of podcasting, Aneke and James. Wow, they sound fabulous, smart, and incredibly attractive. At Minority Corner, you'll get everything from the history you were never taught. Like the history of Chinese immigration, or who was James Baldwin, or African queens of old, like Queen Candace. Plus, awesome book recommendations outside of the usual white male cisgender canon. Interviews from comedians, artists, 
as writers and activists. Well, that sounds like a party. But hold up. What about movie and TV reviews starring folks whose melanin is popping? Well, you know Minority Corner loves their deep dive into pop culture, all from a perspective that's black, queer, and ladylike. Oh, yes. And with the election just around the corner, sounds like Aneka and James are going to get us information. Not to mention self-care tips, how to be an ally, and how you can get involved in your community so you can help fix this mess. You know what? James and Aneka kind of sound like us. That's because... Minority Corner! Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Logan Kibbins, and we are talking about defending your life. So, the special effects of defending your life, they seem like they're not that much, but they're pretty substantial. Um, the budget that he got for this movie was like the highest that he'd ever gotten. It was $20 million. Mm-hmm. And he had kind of gotten stuck in this um, $3 million place, which is like, that's what he was making movies for. And even today, that's a low budget film. But back in 1991, it was actually a little bit more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but $20 million then was like a lot of money for this movie. So he was like, okay, great. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want, all the things that I wanted to be able to do. Um, and, quote, he said, Total Recall had just come out a year earlier, and we sat in the room with the people who did those special effects. There was a scene in that film where Arnold Schwarzenegger was in a moving train, and the train went across the landscape, and you could see his face in the train. And up until that time, that had never happened. So the people who did that enabled Meryl Streep and I to be in the tram as it disappeared off into the universe. And that technique had just been invented. And those trams were miniatures. We had big trams, but we didn't have 15 of them that could go off into the distance and certainly we couldn't be in one of them and you wouldn't see us so that kind of stuff was just all exciting and quote so that the, i would say this is a weird time where that's the thing that he's like yeah we're gonna spend all this money <laughs> on this one effect that had just been invented mm-hmm. um and total recall and it's gonna be us going away on a tram like that's a lot <laughs> it's a lot of money to spend on that one tiny effect I mean, I think it's worth it, though. And I think it's also brilliant how he uses his money throughout the rest of the film. He's basically just in, like, a crappy hotel room and an office park. And, you know, to turn the reasoning for that into a metaphor that serves the character in the story, Mm -hmm. I think, is super smart. Um, And then uh, it still gets me at the end. It's a really sweet and resonant way for it to end. So I understand mm-hmm. why his, you know, impulse is to be like, no, no, we we need the total recall uh-huh. special effects dudes <laughs> to make this for us. <laughs> but now thinking that like knowing that he had the the total recall team, like I just wish that someone's face would have gotten melted or <laughs> Different movie. Yeah, it's a very different mm-hmm. film. I mean, did you ever did you notice other special effects things when you were watching it, or did you feel like it was seamless? Um, not so much. I mean, there's like the past lives pavilion, but that's you know where they have holograms, but that's mm-hmm. not too difficult. Um, I'm not. I'm sure there are others that I'm not seeing necessarily. That end one that you're talking about is very clear that you know they spent a lot of money on yeah. that section. Um, but you can kind of see the breakdown of the budget in the arc of the film, yeah. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> like You can kind of see the line items as they progress. And I would say, I mean, 
although I just talked about the the special effects here, the traditional effects and kind of old school way of filmmaking is also something that um, is embraced by Albert Brooks. And I think that's something that you have to do when you have a lower budget, whether it's in-camera work that you have to do or, you know, some kind of visual trick. Um, but there is, for instance, a lot of matte, matte paintings. Mm-hmm. in this film mm-hmm. and matte paintings aren't often used as much I think we have um, CG for that a lot of the time to like recreate backgrounds and things that are too expensive to actually make um, but the judgment center um, where they did all the trials that that was um, the federal building mm-hmm. in West LA and they had these two large annexes that they like painted onto it and um, you can't tell you would, like I watched it again after I had read an interview where he was saying like oh no that's all just matte painting and I was like oh I had no fucking idea mm-hmm. <laughs> it's crazy yeah um, but it works you know these traditional old things that you can save money on and and you know it's fine did did you have any moments where you were like okay we have to try to do this like go back to the the drawing board and like how simple can we make this scene oh yeah absolutely um, I mean I think what defending your life does so well is it makes it about the characters, the storytelling, the motivations and psychology of the characters. And that's, you know, cheap and endless if if you can continue to kind of mine your yeah. characters. And, and if your budget, then your budget can serve other things. And um, there were moments, I mean, I edited Operator, um, and there were definitely moments in that going through multiple phases where there would be scenes that we needed that we didn't have and there's no you know there's no pickups there just wasn't the schedule or the budget for it or availability um oh god so what do you do well i what i started doing and again my wife and co-writer and housemate so like she's there and i can you know show her scenes and be like this is not working we have this note we have this need um we just started throwing away any of the constraints and just playing mental exercises and saying, if we could write anything and shoot anything, what would we create right now for mm-hmm. this moment? And then going towards, you know, any possibility that serves the story and serves the character need and and crosses whatever bridge you need between scenes. And then once you know what that core is, every single time, and this has probably happened like four or five times at least, we found something in the footage that could create that. Oh, it was just already there. Because again, like the point is what what is this character doing and where do they need to get to? What's happening in this relationship? What's happening in the story? And like trying to bring that story point down to the simplest, mm-hmm. most core idea. And then that will tell you how you can solve it. And if you don't have the opportunity to reshoot anything, I mean, we... I, we also had these graphics moments. I don't know that we really solved any transitions with those, but like in the stru- in the construction of it and the writing of it, I always knew that if we needed to, those were malleable after the fact, mm-hmm. and we could put other information in oh, them. Oh, so yeah, so you got some cheats. Available. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I have, I have like, like stretchy material in your mm-hmm. in your tight pants. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which everyone should have. You should, everyone should have stretchy pants for sure. <laughs> Just. Like metaphorically and no, for real, real, like and also for real. <laughs> <laughs> I I wanted to bring up um, the the fact that Rip Torn was a very risky actor to cast at this time, um, because and, and he's I just don't, yeah I don't know why he's Tell a me. wonderful, lovely person, but he had gotten into some like 
trouble with things. I didn't go into like the full research, but he was apparently kind of a loose cannon to people at that time. Mm. And so um, Albert Brooks had to actually sit him down. He had to tell the studio, like, I'm going to sit him down and we're going to have a serious talk. And he said, quote, the studio wanted me to go to someone safer, but Rip was one of the people that made the movie sale. And the reason is because he was unpredictable. That's why I wanted him. I saw many other actors for that part, people that I liked, people that I knew exactly what I would get. And I cast him because it may have been more work for me. And it was a kind of good work. And he would give you something you didn't expect. He would just give you an attitude or a line reading or just the most original kind person that be the most original kind person and it helped the movie immensely. So that's his reasoning of why he wanted Rip. And I can see that in there. Like as the lawyer, he's both kind of menacing and kind and fatherly. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he, you know, seems like he could be like an alcoholic or something, you know, just (laughs) definitely. Right. There's just like a weird edge to him. Yeah. I mean, that's an, that's an interesting parallel to, casting Meryl Streep too like he's going towards people who he gives space to to have a creative freedom and who provide an uncertainty so that's interesting yeah even though um, it's going to make his job more difficult mm-hmm. but but with like very worthwhile results yeah so, and you know when he said about Meryl Streep too is that he called her like a uh, like a f- a fastball pitcher mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. working with her is like working with a fastball pitcher or something because like the harder that you give to them, the harder they'll give back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, you know, that's yeah. not easy. Yeah. It's a very uncontained kind of dynamic on set, I would imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you had that experience at all before? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, like with um, I think it's mostly been with actresses of a certain age mm-hmm. who are like past the moment where Hollywood decides they're not worth anything anymore and they've come, they're still fucking amazing actors and they still have careers and they've come back and they probably have more control, hopefully have more control over things and, you know, have more choices for what they do. There's definitely a testing period. They're like, who the fuck are you? Can you, are you a director? I mean, especially Mm -hmm. working with people who've worked in TV. I think there's a lot of actors who train themselves to not need directors, which is, you know, not unwise, but also unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and I love working with actors and I love creating a safe space for them and really hoping to benefit from their expertise and their work and their research and um, but also being a guide for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there's there have been a lot of funny moments of this really quick back and forth of like somebody, you know, maybe a first read. And then you're not getting what you want. And how do I respond to that? And then having the actor push back. And it really, I want, the first time I ha- it happened, I said, I told Sharon, I was like, I feel like I've been brandoed, that I've just been like, <laughs> <laughs> like I've just been in this fastball session, I guess, to, to steal yeah, out yeah, of yeah. Brooks' metaphor. You're in the batting cage. Yeah, and they're just like, like okay, okay. I'll... They're like, can you handle this? Who are you? What, you know, what yeah. do you know? What What's your training? Like, are you with me? Are you paying attention? I'm going to give you a bad read. Did you notice? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, when you come out of that and, and you've, like, won them over, you have this, like, immediate strong bond for a really long time. Um, so, yeah, it's – but you have to absolutely be on your toes. Um, and, you know, you have to deserve those people. They're fucking great career actors who have been doing this for a long time and yeah. don't need to make choices around you as a new director anymore. Yeah. So – yeah, Rip Torn. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's funny because the scene that I feel like maybe doesn't 
need to be quite as long in defending your life um, is when Riptorn is not there, when Albert Brooks gets a new uh, defense attorney. And I forget what his name is because he's totally designed just to be like a nice yeah, boring just whatever. dude yeah. who like has a great relationship with the prosecutor and doesn't need to show anything and you know is doing it all by the books. Um, and it's it's nice to show that as a contrast to Rip Torn, mm-hmm. but to see those moments without the character and the act and the actor of Rip Torn definitely shows what that actor is bringing to the to those scenes. That's interesting. Um, that I believe that is one point where I was wondering why it was happening in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel like story wise, it's just to show those scenes without Rip Torn, not as the actor but as the character. Yeah. Um, but it does go on for quite some time. In my head, I was just like, I wonder if they shot this the first scene or the last scene, and they couldn't get Rip to be there, mm-hmm. so they're like, mm-hmm. maybe we'll just rewrite this. Yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't tell. Um, but he, they are like both of them, both the attorneys are these perfect parent figures. But also, I think I uh, watching the, it again, it's like the analogy of the film can just be applied to so many different times of life, at least of my life. Like, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know why I responded to it when I was 14, but clearly something about what it was saying made sense to me. I mean, I didn't understand. Well, you don't the, want to grow up to be the person who didn't take the risk who didn't do the thing that you wanted to do yeah. um who uh told on their friend to yeah. save themselves <laughs> exactly we find out in daniel's history yeah. yeah so i mean it does seem to have a kind of resonance in that thing the way that albert brooks was talking about it too aside from the fact that fear is kind of universal and then he was wondering why there weren't more movies written about fear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not where fear just happens to be in there. Like, horror movies are all fear. But not about fear and examining why fear exists and what it is. Um, but, you know, he was thinking – he had a kind of prescience where, <laughs> you know, he was talking about the fact that wouldn't it be terrible if someone, you know – read all of the letters that you ever wrote to someone or knew Oof. all of your deep and then like put that in a courtroom like that's what he was talking about in interviews back then oh it's just God. like wouldn't that be terrible and then you look at today and mm-hmm. you're like that's exactly what's happening everyone is examining your life mm-hmm. in real time and telling you what was good and what was bad and what you should have done differently mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he was tapping into this anxiety i think that we have of like you know are we good people did we do a good thing yeah and and did we do that under like quick immediate review and scrutiny yeah without a lot of discussion or time for reflection or looking at the backstory and was it performative simple action based Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i mean terrifying that in itself it stands the test of time (laughs) would you ever make like a movie that was very you know philosophical in these i mean i feel like operator definitely operates yeah yeah (laughs) in that that area (laughs) yeah definitely examining tech and its relationship to humanity yeah for sure i mean i think you know people say what kind of films do you want to make and i used to say philosophical comedy but then people are like what the fuck are you talking about so now Here's i just say dark dollars. comedy yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um but absolutely that that is it's gotten in my brain and that's what i am interested in i mean as i said everything i think of first starts with theme mm-hmm. but it's it's sort of theme associated with emotion and from that comes character for me they're all connected but it's like what piece do you get first mm-hmm. um and usually i know when i want to make something when i have sort of two disparate ideas that don't feel connected the 
things I'm mulling over that are important to me, and then I find a third or even more ideas that connect those two. Yeah. And that's when it's like, okay, that's an interesting intersection that necessitates a longer story. Um, so, yeah, an, an operator I definitely think of as philosophical, um, but we were very purposefully not using any sort of, you know, heaven like metaphor mm-hmm. or um, alien metaphor or future time. We yeah. said it in a present time because it just felt like it it's literally happening around us. We don't yeah. need to put a metaphor around technology and behavior. Um, mm-hmm. It's happening right now. Although some weird, we weren't as, you know, multi-decade prescient as Oliver <laughs> Brooks. But, um, you know, we started writing it before Siri came out. Yeah. And we certainly were writing about Joe's self-quantifying before like Fitbits and Apple Watches and mm-hmm. all that stuff came out and people were like what the fuck is this guy doing? And then the next year we're pitching people and they're all wearing jawbones and tracking their steps and yeah. it seemed totally normal. Um, yeah, there's like, oh, yeah, no, this seems exactly right. Like, yeah. This is definitely <laughs> like a contemporary I got love that story. for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um so, yeah, but it, it, it was an interesting ch- – writing an interesting line of not making something fantastically real. Um, I think it's easier maybe to take that metaphor of something that's more distant from reality and put that on your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of the film we made as hopeful and honest, uh, but I think some people interpreted it as – some people felt it was sad. <laughs> but I, I Sometimes th- I honesty like, isn't yeah. completely, you know, without its sadness, though. Totally. I mean, I, and I, I feel like optimism to me is better earned going through vulnerability and sadness. Yeah. As we see also in defending your life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and chatting with Thank me today. You. And if people want to catch up with your work, Operator, where can they uh, watch it? Uh, it's on Netflix and iTunes, Amazon various platforms, but Netflix is going to be the easiest. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Logan. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Scotland Lutheran says, I don't know anything about movies, so I had been ignoring ads for this podcast, but now I wish I'd tried it earlier. Episodes are perfectly fascinating and charming whether or not you've seen the films being discussed, but fair warning that you are going to want to see every movie by the end. Lovely. And... Oh, here's a good one. Enid Coleslaw 420 says... <laughs> oh, that's good. This is a podcast my husband and I can listen to together on long car rides. This podcast made me seek out Near Dark at my local movie rental store. Yep, there's one in my tiny university town. This podcast got me to watch Jennifer's Body. Thank you. Next up, Demon Seed. Oh, Enid Coleslaw 420. I do hope someone chooses Demon Seed because I've already done months of research on it. And then we've got NYC Fluxer who says the insightful discussions have led me to rewatch familiar films in new ways. So... If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And then please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. I pray to God when I get back, you've changed. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.